Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I'm the Events and Lectures Coordinator here at the RA. I'm delighted to introduce our second lunchtime lecture for Anselm Kiefer programme, which welcomes the curator Kathleen Soriano. In 1989, Kathleen joined the National Portrait Gallery as head of exhibitions and collections and was responsible for some of its most successful exhibitions, including photographic shows on Mario Testino, Annie Leibovitch, and Helmut Newton. In 2006, she became director of the independent art, art gallery Compton Verney in Warwickshire, and then in 2009, she was appointed as director of exhibitions at the Royal Academy of Arts. In her time here, she has programmed and developed exhibitions such as Bronze, David Hockney, Van Gogh, Degas, and now Anselm Kiefer. Kathleen is a trustee of the recently opened House of Illustration and continues her work as a patron of crisis and a member of the Women Leaders in Museums Network. Since leaving the Royal Academy in April this year, she has been working independently on artistic and cultural projects, and many of the exhibitions we will see here over the next four to five years are shows that Kathleen has helped to develop as Director of Exhibitions here at the RA. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Kathleen Soriano. Thank you, Amy. Um, good morning, or good afternoon, everybody. When I first joined the Academy in 2009, one of the very first things I needed to think about was the next uh, wonderful Royal Academician that we were actually going to ask to work in these fantastic Beaux-Arts galleries that we're lucky enough to have here at the Royal Academy. We've got this fantastic tradition where we worked with Anish Kapoor, first of all, and then David Hockney. So it seemed to me pretty obvious pretty quickly that the best person, the only person really who could deal with the monumentality and the scale of those galleries was Anselm Kiefer himself. Now the Royal Academy has a long history of association with Anselm Kiefer. It goes right the way back to 1981 when he was one of the key figures who featured in our New Spirit in Painting exhibition, an exhibition that went on to be incredibly influential in determining really the great artists of our day to day. And then in 2007, we saw him make this fantastic installation, which many feel was probably the best installation we've ever had in the courtyard, up until now, I would argue, um, the Jericho Towers. But beyond that, um, he's been a regular supporter of the summer exhibition and every year has submitted a work uh, for the exhibition itself. And in 1996, was made an honorary Royal Academician. So it's fantastic to, be working, to have been working with an artist who really understands the values of the Royal Academy. So when I went to see him, first of all, to suggest that we make this exhibition together, he said, yes, we will make it from the very beginning to the very end. And at that point, I was a little bit scared because the, the Royal Academy does have a small history of artists dying whilst their exhibitions are actually in the making. Um, and I really didn't want to lose Anselm, I have to say, particularly because what makes our one-person Royal Academician show special is that they are part retrospective, but most importantly, they are part the work of the artists themselves. So they can produce contemporary work that responds directly to the gallery spaces that they're working in. So I really needed Anselm to be able to do that for me. Now, Anselm Kiefer, I think, is known very well in the art world, um, certainly has had exhibitions all over the world and is in most of the major collections around the world. But the exhibitions that we've seen of his work have been focused on particular themes. And I really wanted to show the full breadth now, most people tend to think of his work as being monumental and very monochromatic. But one of the things I wanted to do was to show the full range of his work, the delicacy, the lyricism, and the fact that some of it could actually be quite small. 
Now, the very first gallery of the exhibition is incredibly crowded, and, and I apologize for that. But what I wanted to do in that room is to give you the tools to understand the symbolism, but also to understand the range of media that he works with. Now, books have been an incredibly important part of his working life, right from the very beginning, right from 1968. And that room, I think, has over 47 books installed in it that Anselm's worked on. And as you go to the end of the exhibition, you'll see that the book reappears again. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't been working on it throughout um, his working practice. Um, this book in particular is dedicated, as most of his works tend to be, to Jean Genet, the French writer, who notoriously was uh, gay and ended up in prison and wrote this important book called The Name of the Rose, as you'll see is alluded to here in this work. Kiefer is one of the most intellectual and learned artists I've ever worked with. I had to um, up my game incredibly to be aware of all the philosophers, historians, poets, uh, writers of, of the world, really, and religions to keep up with him. So it was quite um, a task. And certainly that first visit to the studio was incredibly overwhelming when I had to sort of start to understand how I was going to construct and tell this, this story. But really it was about going back to the beginning. And when you go back to the beginning, Anselm Kiefer was born in 1945, just a few months before the end of the war. And he talks about how, as a child, he grew up surrounded by the rubble of the towns and villages in which he was raised. Now, you have to remember that these uh, houses would have been bombed during the bombing raids from, from England and from America. And he talks about the bricks that surrounded his family home and how, as a child, he would play with those bricks and construct edifices as he really has gone on to do, you think about the Jericho Towers, right to the present day. So the war has been incredibly formative in his, in his life and in his work, this love of ruins and the idea of ugly beauty in those ruins has also continued right the way through his work. Now, he says that he always knew that he wanted to be an artist, right from a very, very young age, from the age of nine. But he went to university in Freiburg in 1965 to study law, and that was really because he was interested in the ethics that underpin our society and the rules that control us, really, as individuals that we work to. But it was only about three semesters before he realised that it was the art that he needed to go back to. So he went to the Academy of Fine Arts in Karlsruhe, where he had some fantastic uh, tutors who really allowed him to work in the figurative tradition at a time when the rest of the art world was really looking much more to New York and the work of conceptual artists such as Donald Judd. Now, Kiefer knows about these artists. He certainly nods to these artists, and I think that the book and, and others that you'll see in the exhibition that reference Donald Judd are really his way of going, yeah, 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 I know what you're up to, but this is what I'm doing. And what he was actually doing was really trying to confront Germany's history. When he was at school, he talks about how, when they were, looking at, when they were having history lessons, they heard nothing about the Second World War at all. And he couldn't understand why there was this silence, both in, in, in common or popular conversation, but also in, in the studies. And it wasn't until he heard a record of Hitler and Goebbels and Goering's speeches that he received what he calls a shock. And he often talks about how he needs a shock to inspire his work. And that shock can carry him on through for many, many years. He talks about how the sound of Hitler's voice got under his skin um, in the way that music can, and that really inspired him to confront this history. 
So he decided to create this occupation series of photographs, and they're called occupations in that he took the Sieg Heil at wearing his father's Wehrmacht uh, uniform. Both uh, the Sieg Heil and the wearing of German uniform had been banned since 1945, remember, but he took it around key sites in Europe, basically occupying them, but also confronting them with this sign. And the idea was not so much um, that it was a self-portrait, but more that his body was a point of transmission. And he was helping the viewers confront this history and face this history once again rather than forgetting it. Now, when he presented this body of work to his uh, tutors, um, most of them were appalled at the arrogance of this 24-year-old artist. But one of them, Kuchenmeister, who'd actually been in a concentration camp himself, understood what Kiefer was trying to do so encouraged him. And at this stage, Kiefer said, I want the best mark, or I want no mark at all, which gives you an idea of what he was like to work with over the last four years. Now, it's all very well to think of him in that sort of old tradition of figurative art, but at the same time, he was really looking to contemporary practice as well, and the appropriation of imagery. Here you have um, a, a beautiful watercolour called Herzeleider. Now, Herzeleider means aching heart, and Herzeleider was the mother of um, Parsifal. Now, here she is holding a palette, also a reference to the artist, um, apparently looking a bit like the Madonna and Child, but she isn't some sort of beautiful, um, elegant, young woman. Um, she's actually uh, a farmer's wife who's appropriated from... A, a National Socialist poster, which is promoting an understanding of um, a rule that was present in the time where if the father died during the war, that all the land and the materials passed directly to the son. And in the, in the poster image that uh, Kiefer had seen, the woman was actually holding a, the writ, the piece of paper that had that information. So here, much in the way that you would see Warhol or even Richter, but he's appropriating uh, pop imagery of the time and using it in his work. So with the occupation series, he then for his final degree, under monitored um, circumstances, produced these five paintings. And we have three of them, the heroic symbols paintings in the exhibition itself. And again, you'll see the appropriated imagery with the classical statues uh, above him. Now those classical statues uh, were statues that he'd found reproduced in a book, that he, a magazine that his father had called Art of the Third Reich. So again, that very, very modern tradition, but in a very um, sort of old-fashioned way, still using the heroic uh, uh, classical um, poses. And you'll see here, his body is really undertaking, he thinks about it more in terms of a performance, performance art, rather than uh, sort of figurative art. And the presence of the Rhine starts to appear, something that's very central to his work. He grew up on the banks of the Rhine and was fascinated by the idea of borders, uh, the line between good and bad, between chaos and evil. But the Rhine was actually thought of as the barrier or the border between France and Germany. And every spring, the meltwaters from the river would rise and flood the basement of his house in Germany. And at that point, he'd think to himself, is France now in the basement of my house? So... But it was very hard to be an artist in Germany at this time. And I think that artists like Kiefer and Baselitz um, and Polka, um, what they were really trying to do was to reclaim uh, the landscape for themselves. Now, you have to remember 
that art, fine art, was very associated with the Third Reich. Uh, Hitler was even promoted as a visual artist, so it made it very difficult to be an artist in Germany at that time. So Kiefer felt that he had to reclaim all of those elements um, of art in order to purify it, really. And here we have a beautiful watercolour which is on loan from the Metropolitan called Kranke Kunst, Sick Art. Now that whole wall of watercolours, jewel-like watercolours that you see as you walk in, are all based on photographs that he took when he was in Norway. And at first you're seduced by the delicate beauty and the colours, but very quickly you see that what are setting suns are really sort of pustules um, that denote the sickness of the art itself. And that's a direct allusion, really, to the degenerate art um, of the Nazi period and how the Nazis were so tied up in deciding what was good and what was bad art. But Kiefer's work is full of symbolism and full of meaning. And one of the things I tried to do in the exhibition was not to burden the um, works with too much information about what they could or what they do actually mean. Because I think as well as being full of meaning and symbolism, they are also incredibly beautiful and powerful works of art. And, and many visitors aren't really interested in the symbolism and the meaning of the works. But um, for, for those that are, it, it's always there with Kiefer. So here, I'm, I'm using this slide, uh, which is um, a work about the German, Germany's spiritual heroes to really reference his interest in, in uh, mythology, and Norse mythology in particular, and here about the stories that came out of Iceland in medieval period around the Edda. Um, and there, the rainbow is actually constructed by the gods as a connection between heaven and earth. So all the gods would take um, the, the rainbow up until heaven, apart from Thor, who would actually walk right the way across the river, and I have this fantastic image of this giant figure walking across the river. But the, the, the higher line, which is, how, uh, which is the same reference to uh, spiritual heroes, and the Zekile, is also uh, translated as healing, and to heal, and to repair. And certainly Kiefer um, is often talking about using art in a way that it heals and that it repairs. The other key um, presence that's very important in Kiefer is the presence of the forest. And he talks about how the story of Germany both begins and ends in the forest. During the war, as a child, he was taken on a small cart into the forest by his family whenever the bombing raids were taking place. So the forest was seen as a place of refuge by many German families. At the same time, it's a place that's loaded with fear and horror, if you think about the fairy tales that we've all grown up with, and certainly that the German children would have done too. But more importantly, for those of you that were here last week at Christian's um, uh, lecture, it's the, the place that's associated with the birth of the German nation, and the Battle of Hermann, the Battle of Arminius. Hermann is the German name of Arminius, in, uh, who in AD 9 managed to push back the Roman soldiers led by Varus, who's also represented in the exhibition, and stopped them from taking over the German lands. So those German clan leaders were seen to be really the foundation of the German nation that we know today. Um, but this isn't just about uh, that idea of the forest. Here you've got Kiefer holding the burning bush with its allusions to religion and Moses. Now he was born a Catholic, but clearly became very interested in Judaism, Buddhism, Kabbalah in particular. And you see that reflected throughout the exhibition. 
And here he's wearing a dress which could be an allusion to one of the Norse gods, but at the same time is a reference to his dressing up um, in a, as a woman for, uh, in homage to Jean Genet, which you see regularly in some of the photographs which are represented in the books in the exhibition. But here, rather like a Norse god, he's holding this burning bush. But the burning bush is the fire that really never consumes, but it purifies. And that importance of fire goes right the way through his work. It's also a direct reference to Prometheus. And Prometheus was the god whose father Zeus forbid him to provide mankind on earth with fire. But Prometheus saw mankind suffering and cold and winter and the dark days, so actually stole some of the fire and gave it to mankind. And there were sort of dire consequences for the gods as, as, a, as a consequence. But that's partly the story that Kiefer's telling. But you also have to remember that for many, um, uh, Prometheus has always been an inspiration, inspiration to poets, sculptors, and artists alike. So double, triple, quadruple references within one work in itself. And those trees are also a reference to the tree of life, but they don't seem to have very many branches and are much more like a cathedral-like structure that connects you again between heaven and earth. But Hermannschlag, the battle of um, Arminius, is represented in the Ways to Worldly Wisdom a woodcut, which is the largest uh, woodcut that Anson Kiefer, first, uh, the first one that he made on that scale, and is a direct, re direct reference to the battle. And you'll see here, yet again, he's going back to pop imagery, much like Richter's 48 heads. Um, he's taken the images of some of the key figures who over the years have written about this battle. So Goethe, some incredible poets will be represented in there, um, and um, novelists as well, and historians. But what he's done is he hasn't actually named them. They're there sort of as representative, representative figures of German history. And what he's trying to do here is to reclaim those um, great writers, because what had happened was they, they and the story of Herminius, sorry, Arminius, had been adopted by the uh, Third Reich to really justify their actions. So this is all about reclaiming that period. And I just wanted to make a passing reference also to the um, appropriation of pop imagery again, where here he takes um, uh, a series of photographs that were made by the Neusaklikite photographer Erna Lenwey-Dirksen, um, which was issued at, um, during the Third Reich. And he attaches it to the front of a book that he's made. And then inside the book, he creates woodcuts of these heads. And as you move through the book, it's as if you move from figuration where you see the actual faces right the way to the back of the book where they're completely blacked out. So he moves from figuration to abstraction. But this is partly a nod to the notions of the great Aryan race and the fact that they was, should be um, good people of the soil, of a rural uh, background, ideally. In this first gallery, we also come across photography. And in this particular book, uh, The Burning of the Rural District of Buchan, uh, which is a place near where he lived, there are a series of photographs that went on to inform many of his landscape paintings over the years. And these pictures also move from complete sort of openness. Uh, and then as you move through the book, there's black gouache that slowly takes over the images themselves so that eventually they're completely obscured. But that notion of landscape, you'll see how important it is to Kiefer. And later on in the exhibition, you'll see the relationship between sky and landscape has been very, very particular. 
unlike other artists, uh, Kiefer's landscapes creep up the canvas. So often you have a very, very small percentage of the landscape that's left for sky. And often these landscapes are barren, uh, ploughed over, but really it's not just about desolation, it's about the promise of rebirth and regeneration as much as anything else. Um, but the uh, use of that device for the landscape and the sky division actually references some very popular landscape painting that uh, was made by artists like Walter Pina in the 1930s. This tradition of celebrating the great German landscape and the Aryan folk that would come from this landscape, often ploughing the fields with horse-drawn ploughs, never a machine in sight, the sort of the basic um, uh, values that were so important. This is another version of the same book where Kiefer has burnt his paintings by way of cauterizing, again healing, the damage that had been done to the landscape. He talks about how after the war, no landscape in Germany could be innocent ever again, given what it had witnessed and what had happened on the landscape. So here he burns the paintings that reflect the stories of that landscape and then cuts them up and makes them into a book. Now, the area Buchen, or that he's actually referencing is an area where the uh, Germans stored large amounts of benzene, which was incredibly poisonous, but also very, very flammable. So very dangerous, both to the people that lived in the area, but also for the legacy that it left with the land. In Winter Landscape, uh, which, which Kiefer talks about referencing Schubert as much as referencing Paul Celan, the poet, um, you again have that, that landscape that's present, but this time it's covered in a blanket of snow. And that blanket of snow, uh, I think it ties in very closely to Paul Celan, who, the, the, the poet who Kiefer is really um, obsessed by in many, many ways. And Celan uses snow to reference the silence that descended over Germany after the war. So here you have that ploughed, barren field again, but above it you have floating um, this head. And again, you, know, you start to think it's really slightly seductive, rather beautiful, and then you notice that it's actually been a severed head and the blood is dripping onto the field. If you want to look at it in a positive way, that blood is also fertilising the field and bringing new life going forward. But the work is also a reference to Kiefer's interest in the ecstasies of the saints, and a direct reference to a work um, by Bernini. Um, so it's that idea that when um, the saints communed with uh, God, they had these moments of ecstasy. And at the end of the exhibition, you'll see that Kiefer returns to this theme again in his watercolours, and it's something that really fascinated him. But it, this also references the Nazi... Um, belief at the time uh, or, or, or ethics around the time about the notion of blood and soil. So very, very much tied in with making people look at that period. But one of the things I, I do ask visitors to the exhibition to do, I know I've been speaking a lot about um, the Third Reich, is really to bring your contemporary uh, eyes to the exhibition because whilst Kiefer is very much talking about this period and the impact of this period. It's, it's really universal. He has a very cyclical nature of time. It's not a linear progression that he's looking for. And actually, it's as much relevant to the world that we live in today and the world that we'll live in the future as it is to that very particular period in time. By the time you get into the second room of the exhibition, um, we meet the Attic series. And what I wanted to talk about here is the importance of the studio to Kiefer. 
Um, he talks about how his studios are like laboratories to him. They're places where he carries out experiments, where he tries to understand um, the human drama that, that's happened in our history. And here you see him using the attic above a schoolhouse in Hornbach, where he had about three buildings. One of them was actually a, um, a brick-making factory. You see him above the schoolhouse here in the attic. And the number of paintings that were produced uh, in that setting was, was limited, but was very, very much about that very, very particular space. So the notion of the studio and his moves across the three studios that he's been in, Buchen, then to Bajac, and then to Kwasi, where he is now today, have been very fundamental influences and changes on the way in which he works. Um, here, we've also got a reference to mythology again. You've got a Nottum, which is the sword of Zygmunt, son of Wotan, and that's a direct reference to uh, Wagner's Ring of the Nibelungen, which is also based on the medieval German epic. Wagner was also appropriated by the Nazis and touted as one of their own. Um, and again, Kiefer wanted to purify that relationship. Just because there'd been that association, it didn't necessarily mean that it was bad. But here's um, a photograph that I took of the, the studio in Kwasi. And the studio is filled, almost organized like a, a Kunstkammer, full of the, these materials that he gathers from the landscapes around him that he uses to, in, his, in his paintings, both to inspire him, but also physically are used in, in the objects themselves. Uh, the studio he's in at Kwasi at the moment is, uh, is uh, I'll tell you a funny story actually. One, we, were talk, we were talking once about, we were having lots of conversations about what should go in the courtyard. And um, on this visit, he'd started applying Scud missiles. Can you see it in the background to the canvases themselves? And we were looking at the most wonderful uh, lead library that we wanted to install in the courtyard. And, and there were reasons why we couldn't do it to do with weight and, and transportation. And I said to him at one point, I said, Anselm, why don't we, why don't we put the library in the courtyard? But a library and outside? That doesn't make sense. I said, ah, oh, and a Scud missile on a painting does. But obviously, in his head, the two things are very, very related. Um, in that attic studio, you see the, um, the fire becomes present again. But this time, it's a spiritual fire. It's Father, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And sitting on this plane, almost as if it's uh, judging the scene below. And this is, the, this is a spiritual fire, but you've also got the connection with the forest still there. And here he is trying to understand the religion that he grew up with. I'm very interested in the notion of the Trinity, and later on in his work you'll see the presence of quaternity, which is the idea of the fourth presence, the fourth angel, the fourth seraphim, uh, Satan. And, and it's that notion again of, of, of things never being black or white. There's always this edge between the two and a tension between the two that he's most interested in. <laughs> In this photograph, uh, the fire starts to really illustrate something else. This is much more going back to the legends of, of Wayland, uh, taken from the Edda, who was the, 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 like Vulcan, who was at his forge. And um, eventually he developed his own set of wings and, and flew away, much like Icarus. But this, this flame here is to do with the furnace that Wayland worked in, Atenor, which is the furnace of creativity and the furnace of genius. But here the flames are licking up at the door in the attic, the door to the artist's studio. And we know that because he's given us a little clue with the palette that sits on the door of the artist. So there behind 
lies um, genius itself. Um, but this also gives us a little insight into his other interest, uh, a sort of really fundamental interest in the notion of alchemy, the idea of turning base metals into gold, and the value of different materials um, and their distinct values, which he uses them again and again in his works, but in, with specific meaning. By the time we get to this painting, the palette representing the artist, sometimes representing Christ, has actually developed a set of wings. And, you know, is the palette on fire? Is it, is it going to crash and burn? Or is the palette sort of reaching this uh, wonderful state of enlightenment and soaring up to the heavens? Now, Keefe has always been interested in this idea of transubstantiation, but also the movement between heaven and earth. He talks about how when he had his first Holy Communion, he was so excited at the idea that he was going to be completely transformed and then terribly disappointed when all that happened after he took the host was that he got a bicycle. Um, so I think that uh, sort of has, has influenced his, um, his disappointment, really. Um, and, and Kiefer, I think, is really interesting to me personally because he, he asked the big questions in life. You know, how did I come to be here? And, and what am I here for? What am I here to do? And when he was asked... Um, by uh, one gentleman who was interviewing him many years ago about um, why he painted. He said, I paint to find out why I'm here, and I look into that abyss every day. I look into that void every day, trying to work out what it is um, that I'm here to do. And the interviewer said, so, so what's the answer? He said, I don't know. That's why I keep on doing it. So I think you know, those big questions. So here you'll see the palette has now changed into um, a set of winged books. And those books are made of lead, so it's a nonsense in a way. They're never going to fly. They're never going to be able to take off. Um, but there is that direct reference to Icarus flying too close to the sun. But again, that reference um, to uh, that movement between heaven and earth. And there's a whole series of paintings that he produced around the subject of Loretto, where the rocks from the birthplace of the Virgin Mary grew wings and flew to Loretto in Italy, and where they landed, a church was built. So very interested in that idea of movement. And the Virgin Mary uh, fascinates him because she's one of the few that can move between heaven and earth and can have a presence on both. By the time we get to the architecture series, the palette is standing front and centre, and really, this is telling us about um, the, the beauty of the architectural ruins that um, Hitler had created. Now, he employed this fantastic body of artists, led, uh, architects led by Albert Speer, um, known as Hitler's architect, and, and commissioned them, really, to make buildings that were based on the classical models of Egypt, Greece, and Rome, and to be made out of stone, because Hitler believed that only um, stone could make beautiful ruins. And Kiefer has said that he believes that the only thing of any cultural worth to emerge from the Third Reich was really the architecture and the buildings. So here he's saying, you know, let's not dispense with these buildings, let's not turn our backs on, on their achievement, but let's re-own them, let's reappropriate them and make them ours. And he's actually taken some of these buildings directly. This is the um, Memorial Hall of the uh, uh, German Chancellery in Berlin, which was de designed by Albert Speer and placed the fire of the artist, or the memorial flame, or even the flames of hell, right at the centre of this very powerful and impressive um, architectural building that he's um, sort of reclaimed, in a way, on our behalf. With these two works, Margaret and Shulamit, we return to poetry. 
and the work of Paul Celan that's really informed a lot of Kiefer's work. Uh, Paul Celan, Romanian uh, Jew, who was interred in a labor camp and his parents both died in a concentration camp during the war. But he famously um, fell in love and had a, a very ill-fated affair with Ingeborg Bachmann, the poet who was uh, born in Austria and her father was uh, a Nazi. And Kiefer talks about how Ingeborg Bachmann sits on his shoulder and um, every day is present when he's making his work and that she is the one who challenges him to ask him, you know, why are you making this? What is it about? And makes him make the work better. But he talks about poetry and how poems are like boys in the sea and he swims from one to the other and often says that if he hadn't been an artist that he would have wanted to be a poet. And certainly when he gets stuck on paintings, he says he often will go to the typewriter and um, create, use words in, in that way. Um, in Margaret, we see him using straw for the very first time in a work. And straw he thinks of as the materia prima. It's, it's when mixed with animal excrement, you lay it on that barren field and it recreates life all over again. But in this painting, it represents the golden hair of Margaret from the poem Todesfuge, Death Fugue, written by Paul Celan, which I think every school child in, in Germany um, learnt when, when they were at school. And um, my interpretation of it, which isn't correct at all, is that you have the golden-haired prison guard um, and you have the ashen-haired uh, beauty um, who was the concentration camp intern in the presence of Shulamit. And in Shulamit, he's actually, as part of the architectural series, appropriated the um, Wilhelm Christ uh, tomb for the unknown soldiers that was there to commemorate the soldiers of the Third Reich who'd fallen. But he's really made it more of a mausoleum to the Holocaust and to Shulamit herself. Here we see the more humorous side of, of Kiefer, really. You've still got um, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost sitting in judgment above, um, trying to make sense of it all. And actually, one of the things I did want to say to you earlier was when we were looking at ways of worldly wisdom, the title of that work, which that large woodcut that he showed, is actually a reference to the title of an apology written by a Jesuit priest about um, God's understanding of our history and our future. And the suggestion thereby being that God was implicit in um, the life and experiences that we have, both good and evil. So I think you, know, you have to understand that Kiefer's relationship with, with God and with religion is, is very uh, fraught. Um, and that work was actually one of four versions that were shown in the Venice Biennale in 1980 when Kiefer represented Germany with Baselitz. And there was a huge uproar at the time when it was shown because it was felt that he was romanticizing uh, German um, history. And many people referred to him as a, a neo-Nazi. And he uh, was uh, very exposed for quite some time. And he talks about how it was the Americans in 1981, and particularly the Jewish Amer Americans, who understood his work and started to buy his work um, extensively. So. Uh, I think for him that was very important that they understood that the work, the, the, the true meaning of the work. But here we see him joking again. Um, this is a, stor a story about a battle that never happened, uh, Operation Sea Line. And the idea is that Hitler, Goebbels and Goering were planning to attack and defeat Britain and therefore end the war by sea with their navy. And it's a joke because the, the German navy at this stage was completely decimated. And the story is that they carried out the plan for the attack in the zinc bath. 
with toy boats. Now, the zinc bath is important because it was a standard issue to every German household uh, during um, the, the Third Reich. And it's that notion of, again, the a good Aryan being hale and hearty and, and, and clean and healthy. And Kiefer most certainly would have had one in his household when he was a child. But he discovered a, another one in his, um, in his uh, studio in Hornbach. Um, and he used it repeatedly in his work. And some of the photographs, you'll see that he puts a pane of glass over the bath and stands on it, very much like God, uh, Jesus, walking on the water. And I, I say this is funny because it does actually allude to a German joke, so I understand it, from Anselm, which is that uh, Hitler, Goebbels and Goering were out on a lake rowing, and uh, Hitler notoriously couldn't swim. And they were talking about Jesus and how he could walk on water, and they decided that Hitler should have a go. Have a go. So Hitler stepped over, immediately sank, so they sort of pull him, pulled him back on board. And the three of them decided that it couldn't possibly be true, because if Hitler couldn't do it, there's no way that Jesus could. So, you know, Kiefer, the work is heavy, it's full of meaning and it's serious, but at the same time, you know, there is joy and fun in it too, a lot of the time. Um, here, we see Kiefer move to his second big studio in Barjac in the south of France. It took over 70 trucks to move his studio. So that gives you a sense of the scale on which he was working even back then. And here, um, you see him lying in the Savasana uh, corpse pose, and he used to go into the fields around his studio. He talks about how there was nothing around near his studio, either there or in Buchan. He likes to go places where there is nothing so that he can create something. This is very allied also with his interest in Heidegger and the notion of boredom, which it would take too long for me to go into it today. But... Um, he uh, planted these uh, seeds of Japanese sunflowers, or sunflowers from Japan, that grew to seven meters tall. And he would lay in the field and gaze up at them. And he felt that these heads, when they were fully ripe, the blackened heads, it was almost like looking into the stars in the sky and the firmament in the sky. And that tied in very nicely with an interest of his in the 16th century English physician called Robert Flood, who had this theory that every plant on Earth was connected to a plant in the sky, uh, sorry, a star in, in the sky. Um, and that notion of the connection, again, between heaven and earth, you see Kiefer constantly exploring. And it's really what the diamond paintings that you find in, uh, later on in the exhibition are still about, that notion of the stars in the sky and the connection between heaven and earth. He first worked with diamonds in about 1988, 1989, where he took um, some diamonds and laid them in... Uh, return them to the earth in a tunnel in Dover. And that's as much a reference uh, to his cyclical view of time again. So he was returning something that had been created by the earth over millions of millennia uh, back to the soil from which it had come. Uh, and really that's what Ages of the World right at the centre of the show is also really about. But a lot of it was inspired by this... Uh, I'm sorry this is such a bad slide, but it's... Um, it's it's a Renaissance engraving called the Flammarion engraving, where you see the man kneeling on earth and poking his head through a sort of a membrane, really, up, until the celestial, up to the celestial realm, sort of moving between the two areas, something that Kiefer clearly is very, very keen to do. And he carries on that theme of connecting heaven and earth with the reference to the pyramids that you see here in, in Isis and Osiris. Um, but also bringing in um, uh, Greek legend, Greek mythology. So, you know, he, he, isn't, um, he, he isn't sort of exclusive in his, in his reference to the creation stories or to the mythologies and, and legends about our own creations. 
And he loves this story because it is about Osiris, whose jealous brother's set. Osiris was um, god of the underworld. Uh, he killed him and dismembered him, cut his body up into pieces, scattered them at all corners of the world. And then his wife remembered, collected and remembered his body, could find every part of his body apart from his penis, and then somehow managed to have a miraculous, uh, immaculate conception. So again, you see that sort of parallels between the stories that we are, have all grown up with. Um, but here you've got him mashing together the sort of contemporary world and the ancient world, where he's taken a TV circuit board and smashed it and attached it to the top of, of the pyramid itself, a place where sacrifices might traditionally have been made, and joined it up to the bits of smashed up pottery which are linked by these copper wires, rather like the body parts belonging to Osiris that Isis collected. But this goes back, his interest in the bricks goes back as well to his interest in the, the notion of ruins. And he'd been traveling at this time across uh, the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, Egypt, and along the Silk Road, and was interested in the beginnings of writing, in the beginnings of learning and education, and how on the banks of the Euphrates and the Tigris you could collect the clay, press it in your hand, and then write on these cuneiform, on these tablets effectively. So that was the very beginning of learning and the communicating of learning and culture is very, very relevant here in this work. Um, but also the notion of bricks being made of clay and the biblical references you have with that, in that man was also made of clay, but we will, ret we will return to dust. Um, and that also references his idea, again, going back to this notion of cyclical time um, and a phrase that he's used uh, on regular basis about over our cities, grass will grow and the fact that you know, time will continue. Um, in this new work that he made for the exhibition, we have him sitting under his own dome of heaven, effectively, and he's made watercolours around this theme, but also um, has taken uh, photographs from very early on in his work and much like the Seattle painting, Orders in the Night, where you saw him lying under the sunflowers, that presence of the, his own body um, as the, the point from which the tree of life, the Jesse tree, sprouts, um, is also a direct reference to the Edda, again, and the tree of life, and Yggdrasil, for those of you that know your Norse and Icelandic mythology. But it goes back to the Ashburn manuscript um, of the 14th century that had inspired him with a drawing um, from... Uh, about the beginning, the beginnings. And really what this is referencing for him is that each of us have our own version of our ethics and our beliefs. Um, but he goes through his life really trying to understand them. And you'll see that on this picture he has written, uh, there are two poems from Paul Salon that are written on this, on this work, just to confuse you. Now, Kiefer says that he uses text on his pictures not to explain. He uses it to challenge or to confront the painting. Um, for Kiefer, art should be something that makes you scratch your head. It shouldn't be easy. It's not just about the beautiful and sublime, although he's the first person to acknowledge his debt to um, the artists like Caspar David Friedrich, the great 19th century um, German romanticist. Um, here we see the, uh, the, the importance of lead, really. He talks about how lead is the only material that's heavy enough to carry the weight of human history and how lead is most like us as humans. It can change, it can mould, it can move its shape, it can be transferred. So for him, 
it's uh, the most uh, interesting material that you can work with. It's also the base material that you have um, in alchemy. And here you have the snowy field again with a reference to a Paul Salon poem, Schwarzerflocken, which is a story about the coming of winter and the loss of his parents in the concentration camp. Um, but that snowy field is actually captured inside the vitrines, which you see here with a nod also to the Jericho Towers. So Kiefer unusually sort of took the painting and imprisoned it in a sort of sculptural uh, format, the, the vitrine, and also populated it with uh, um, briars and thorns. Around his studio in Kwasi, there are large shipping containers, which he use, uses to make the moulds, you can see, of the, the towers, for example. And those containers have materials from his uh, landscapes, maybe dried up tulip bulbs or thorns from around Barjac or um, wildflower seeds that he keeps. So th you have to imagine these containers are full of this rich resource and material that he'll go to and he'll use in his works. But he'll also talk about how nature is incredibly important, plays a very important part in his work. He's often, he leaves things outside to be subjected to the sunlight, to the rain, um, and um, frequently talks about nature being complicit in the making of a work with him. But he also talks about how paintings and his work ripens. He'll work on something, he'll leave it and come back to it the next morning, and he will feel that it's changed. Of course, the work hasn't changed, it's just what's changed is the way in which he's appropriate, approaching it. But that's very much um, the way in which he thinks of the work. Um, with the vitrine in the courtyard, we have that use of lead. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip through these very quickly. Uh, but the re I wanted to show you something that had come before that. This is in Barjac, in his estate in the south of France, where he's taken his installation from Monumenta in Paris, uh, which is this sort of reference to Operation Sea Line again, actually, with the crashing of the boats and these destroyed rubble. And, but he's put them inside these enormous glass houses that populate the landscape in, in Barjac. Um, it's, it's a 75-hectare estate, not about an hour north of Avignon, um, which has about 52 buildings that he's made on it, either towers or little mini galleries in which he shows work or installations. And he's also created uh, a number of tunnels. It's almost like reverse archaeology. He's almost populated that landscape with his own stories. So you can see where the idea for this came from. I mean, originally, um, we were going to put a glass house in the courtyard of the Royal Academy. Um, but Kiefer has worked for a long time on vitrines, but never worked on vitrines in an external setting. So this was an exciting prospect to take that and turn it into that. And, and we're very pleased with, with it. Um, Lead, of course, and alchemy, which I wanted to reference. The studio is also full of chemicals, and he's constantly dipping things or leaving things to rust. Uh, those boats that you'll have seen in, in the Klebnikov piece will probably have been sitting in water for a couple of years or dipped in acid, because he's very interested in that notion of change. And towards the end of the exhibition, we have that combination, that return to books and the return to the delicacy of watercolour. And... And I really wanted to celebrate colour at the end of the exhibition and going back to the small again because so many people think of his work as just being about the black and the white. But often, Kiefer's paintings will begin with colour. They start with a colour photograph under the canvas and then he will apply coloured paint, not necessarily related to the image that's sitting underneath it. 
and then ultimately he'll come to the more familiar palette that we know him for, the greys, the browns and the blacks. But on this occasion, in the Morgenthau plan and the Morgenthau series, he's stuck with the, the colour on the canvas. And you see here the importance of Van Gogh in something like the central painting where you've got that direct reference to the uh, late paint wheat fields that Van Gogh was painting. That relationship between the sky and the landscape um, is, is, is almost exactly the same. And the presence of those malevolent, malevolent crows signifying an oncoming death, uh, but also the possibility of resurrection are also present. Now, Kiefer, um, right through the centre of Kiefer runs Van Gogh. Uh, he was fascinated with him, uh, by him from the age of 16 when he wrote an essay on him, which was published in the Spiegel, and uh, a few years later travelled around Holland where he visited many of the sites associated with Van Gogh. So he has this sort of really deep connection with him and there are constant references, uh, not least of all if you look at the boots that are hanging on the picture to the left of the main one, constant references and homages to Van Gogh. Um, I won't talk about the Morgenthau plan because it's on the panels in the wall explaining it, but what I will talk about is... Um, Ignis Saka, which is one of the paintings in the room. Now, Ignis Saka is really the holy fire, but really isn't a reference to anything as spiritual as it sounds, but to something really rather sinister. It's very like Kiefer, you know, the good and the bad, and the, the, the positive and the negative. Um, uh, Ignis Saka was another name for St. Anthony's fire, which was um, a rye ergot, which used to affect uh, the wheat fields and would turn the entire wheat field black. And during the Middle Ages, it was associated with witchcraft, partly because um, the, the product could create, uh, allow hallucinations. And Kiefer saw an entire field infected with this um, mycosis. Um, and uh, it was for pharmaceutical purposes. So uh, good was being made of this evil product. Uh, it's been used in, in medicine today in a positive way. And finally, in that room, we have a painting which I'm not showing now, which is a reference to the Philosopher's Stone, not like one of my colleagues from the RA when I took them around the exhibition. It's not about Harry Potter. Um, she, was, she was so excited. It was the one bit of Kiefer that she knew about. And I was like, no. Um, but the Philosopher's Stone is, is the one bit that uh, you need to... It's that ingredient that you need to transfer the base metal into gold. So it was always this really sought-after element in alchemy. But it's also very closely associated with the notion of immortality. But I think most important of all for Kiefer, it's actually associated with the idea of enlightenment. And that's really what he's been searching for in his work. And we end the exhibition with um, uh, the maze that you have to walk through, the maze, really, of Kiefer's mind in many respects, all those elements that have been present in his life and in his work right from the very start. Although he works on this very large scale, and he's incredibly prolific, and some Kiefer returns to the same issues and the same themes again and again in his work, you know, alchemy, religion, um, the Rhine and literature, um, and good and evil, and the connections between heaven and earth. And here you have a number of the uh, icons that he's used in his time. You've got some of the crumbling towers from the Siegfried line that he used to walk along as a child. Uh, you've got the Rhine as present itself. You've got the presence of quaternity here on, on the right. And ultimately, um, Albrecht Dürer's uh, melancholic polyhedron, which is, is really about the presence of the artist because it references Galen, Galen's doctrines um, in which he identified the four bodily humours that everyone possessed and, of course, it was felt that artists um, possessed more of melancholia than other people. And 
melancholia is also most associated with the planet Saturn, and Saturn is also associated with the material lead. So that cyclical time of history is also very connected to the artist himself as well. So thank you very much. Uh, we've got a few minutes for questions, and there's two mics at the back. Does anyone have any questions or observations, perhaps? Thank you. Sorry. Um, that was extraordinarily enlightening, and many thanks indeed. Um, I wonder if you could throw any light on uh, what has happened at Barjac and whether um, it will ever be open for, for viewing. Yeah. Um, I, I think Kiefer would love that to happen, and... Um, they're, they work towards making that happen at some point in the future. That is the intention. He still uses it as a studio now and again. In fact, we were down there over the summer um, where he'd made a completely new installation in most of the spaces. Uh, so he does still interact with it and still goes down there, but ultimately the hope is to have it open. And, and if anyone ever has the chance to visit, it's another world. And the closest you can get is there's a wonderful film. Uh, there's a film by Fine, uh, Martha, or I always get the girls confused. I think it's Martha Fines or so Sophie Fines about Barjac, which really gives you a sense of it. Thank you, this was a wonderful talk. You mentioned, I think, that around about 1980 something, 70 trucks took his stuff to the. That would imply that he already he was successful and presumably uh, had money, yes? Well, when exactly did he become, stop being an, a poor artist and become well, well known? Um, I think in 1980, when he represented the Venice Biennale, but then there were the issues to do with the outcry as a result of it. But I think it really started in earnest in about 1981, and he moved to Baj when he started being collecting, so collectible in New York. And then it was 1992 when he moved to Barjac in the south of France. Thank you. It's a wonderful talk. Um, I'm interested in a technical point. It's the wide range of materials that he uses. How, does, um, how are they preserved, his paintings? So oh, his paintings. well, that's, that's a very interesting question because, he, because he's so interested in the impact that nature has on his work, he's also very... He's not interested in the preservation of his work. For him, he's very interested in it deteriorating, which becomes a huge problem for museums and galleries because the minute the museum and gallery acquires his work, they don't want it to change. Um, which makes it very hard for institutions like the Royal Academy to borrow works because institutions are too scared to lend their works because bits will fall off. So I, I, I think I've persuaded him in future when he makes work to actually have a thesis attached to it that outlines very clearly his views on the changing nature of his work because I know that during the installation we had a conservator over from San Francisco who was working on Isis and Osiris some attention needed to be made with the, the, the joins of the, the copper wires and the porcelain needed to be reattached. And because she was working with one of Kiefer's uh, studio assistants and using his methods, it gave her permission as a conservator to actually use unusual materials and to actually approach the restoration of the work in a completely different way. So I think, you know... For, for, artists, for conservators working with contemporary materials, it's really helpful when you have the views of the artist attached because the natural inclination of any museum professional is not for the work to change. But he likes that. <laughs> and we've got time for one more question. Thank you. 
You said a lot about the background of German ruins, and German landscape, and German history, as well as the more global from ancient Greece to modern uh, to ancient Mesopotamia. But what informed his move from Germany and the landscape and the history of his own country to southern France? What informed his particular move? I know many artists moved to France, but yeah, him particularly. Um, I'm trying to remember because I do know the answer to this. I I I. I think that he, I think that he felt unrecognised or undervalued in Germany, and um, he stopped painting for about two or three years and travelled extensively. About I think it was ninety three to ninety five, and um, it was after that. Oh no, it was actually before that that he was actually in Barjac. But I think it was, it was partly to do with wanting to be somewhere new that had no stories associated with them. So that's the idea of going somewhere where there is nothing and where he has no connection. And if you, I don't know if you know Quassy, the area where he is now. It's uh, Marne-la-Vallée, just outside of Paris. I think it's near where Euro Disney is. There's nothing there. He's in a sort of an industrial complex. It's an old Samaritan uh, warehouse. Um, so I think it is about going places where, which isn't populated with history or meaning so that he can actually make it fresh and new. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us. You can find out about more events on the Kiefer programme downstairs in the main reception and on our website. But please join me in thanking Kathleen Soriano for a wonderful lecture.